9 and consider this glorious mystery found in one man alone, Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord, the Christ. John chapter 9, we come to what is quite possibly one of my favorite episodes in John's gospel. I, even in saying that, made a caveat, because how do you pick one uh, that's your favorite episode? But this is just a tremendous, tremendous chapter. We've been taking our time to work through the whole of the chapter of John chapter 9, considering this miraculous work of Christ to heal a man born blind and to prove his deity and his power and his glory. The whole of the episode is this man born blind, God through Christ moves to heal him and he does that by spitting on the ground, making mud, anointing the man's eyes, telling him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. The man goes and washes and is miraculously completely healed. It's a validating sign of Jesus as Messiah, that he is indeed the one sent from God. This is undeniable proof of everything John is trying to say to you about Jesus. Only one man who's ever lived could do this. And if any man could do this, it is incontrovertible proof that he is from God. He works this miracle in a very public place, as we saw last week, to a very prominent individual to draw attention to his very unique power. What's so amazing as you read John 9 is the interaction between the man who was healed and the Jewish authorities. And that's what we have the joy of looking into this morning. They're like opposing weights in a a pulley system. One weight going up and the other going down. They can never be going the same direction. As the blind man progresses in faith, the Pharisees digress into further unbelief. What I want to do this morning is focus our attention on the exchange between Jesus and and this, uh, excuse me, between the Jews and this man. And show you the, the nature of their conversation. Last week we saw the miracle itself and the overwhelming proof it provided that Jesus is who he claimed to be this, in the weeks to come. We'll consider how the account ends, how the man is is picked up by Jesus and encouraged by him and brings his faith to completion. But today we see how this big chunk in the middle fits in to the story. As I read this exchange, I think you cannot help but be struck by the amazing contrast we'll find in this text between the man healed and the Pharisees. The man born blind is full of, of honesty and clarity and truth. The Pharisees, however, are full of confusion and deception and hatred and vitriol toward the man and toward Jesus. The whole account makes the point that you can see with your eyes, but you might indeed be spiritually blind. In fact, you might think you have it all figured out spiritually. You might think you are even a disciple of the right teacher. But in fact, you might be more blind than this man born blind ever was. Last week we saw the the blind can see when Jesus touches them and heals them, this week we'll see the seen are blind, as illustrated by the Pharisees. You follow along, I'll start reading in verse 13 of John chapter 9. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. 
He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Pray with me, would you? Father, we are weak and weary, unable and incapable to receive your word as we should. I especially am unable and incapable to deliver your word as it is worthy to be delivered. So, Father, we beg of you in these minutes that you would help us along, that you would carry us along by your Spirit. Open our eyes to comprehend the glorious truths of this text. Would you lay it plain before us that we might see the truth, love the truth, and thereby love you still more and more. Father, we ask for your help in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. You know the same sunlight which hardens dry soil also melts wax. The same fire which burns wood is used to refine metals. We see that reality played out in the text before us. The the fires of adversity have polar opposite effect in this text. The same facts are at play, right? They're, They're not different for the two groups of people here. There's one man born blind who can now see and Jesus is the one responsible. That's the bottom line issue in this text. And as the controversy brews and eventually blows up, the fires of opposition rise and we see opposing effects upon the man and on the Pharisees. The man is strengthened in his faith through this trial. And the unbelief of the Pharisees is revealed or may we say exposed as they melt under the pressure of Jesus' undeniable sign. I want to walk you through this text by pointing out to you five pairs of truth. It'll end up being ten points on the PowerPoint. Don't worry, we will move quickly. You will get to lunch before two. As we see the progression, I want you to, as I walk through it, I want you to see the progression of the blind man towards a true and a strong faith. And I want you to see the digression of the Pharisees' unbelief devolving deeper and deeper into the the chasm of their rebellious refusal to accept the bare and plain facts presented before them. The main point being illustrated in this text to us this morning, the, the golden thread that runs through it is that where there is true faith and when it is tested, it will be strengthened. It does not mean it will not fall down here or there. A righteous man falls seven times and gets back up, Proverbs says. But ultimately, Faith tested, that is true faith, will be faith strengthened. But false faith, when it is tested, will be exposed. The fires will burn off its mask and show it for what it is. You remember where we ended last week at the end of verse 12? It was in this complete perplexity of the crowd. Even the man who was healed didn't know exactly what was going on. He knew Jesus had healed him, but he didn't know a whole lot else. The crowd was perplexed. They didn't know what to do. So they, they grab this man in verses 13 to 15 and they, they march him to the Pharisees. John throws this little caveat in the text, lets you know that this all happened on the Sabbath day, not the trial. That happened the day after, I believe. But on the Sabbath day, he was healed. John tells you that so he can set up the controversy. And can I just ask you, do you think that was on accident by our Lord? Do you think he healed the man and went, oh, nuts, it's the Sabbath day. Of course not. He knew exactly what he was doing. It was a well-aimed arrow at the heart of the Pharisees. 
It was an undeniable, incontrovertible, unavoidable miracle on the Sabbath to drive the point home that you are not who you say you are, Pharisees. This crowd, however, simply wanted to know from their religious leaders how they were supposed to be thinking about this man who had been healed. They're trying to make sense of it. What in the world just happened? And this guy who healed him, how should we think about him? So they take the blind man to their religious leaders. This is what you do. You just take him to people you respect and, and honor and ask them, what should we do about this? I'm going to give you ten headings as we walk through the text in five pairs, and you're going to see that the man who was healed speaks in truth every time he's questioned. And the Pharisees respond in further unbelief every time he speaks truth. All combines to teach us that true faith is strengthened when it's tested. False faith is exposed when it's tested. We first see the man tell the simple truth about what happened in verse 15, don't we? He states the matter as plainly as it happened to him. They bring him before the Pharisees. The Pharisees ask him what happened, and he tells them. You notice what he doesn't do? He doesn't regurgitate the whole conversation that he heard Jesus and the disciples having about his blindness and relating it to his or his parents' sinfulness in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 9. He doesn't regurgitate that whole thing and say, well, this, I heard them saying this, and then he did this. And no, he, he doesn't even tell them what Christ did. He doesn't say, Christ spit on the ground, made the mud, anointed my eyes, told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam. I did, and now I see. No, he simply says, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. It's as simple as that in the mind of this man. Now, you must know that he knows what's going on, Right? He knows who these people are. He knows these Pharisees and what they're doing. He's heard the conversations. He knows they don't approve of Jesus. He knows they're fierce opponents of the one who healed him. He knows they don't like what he did on the Sabbath day. The blind man, the, the man healed, knows these things. He at least knows the discomfort of being in the spotlight of their investigation. In verse 22, we're told that his parents knew that there was great antagonism toward Jesus by the Jewish leaders, that they had agreed that if anyone confesses Jesus as the Messiah, they're to be excommunicated from Jewish life, kicked out of the Sabbath. The stakes are high. Certainly this man had heard his parents talking about that, right? Certainly he knew there was some tension in the room. If, if he couldn't have seen it before, he can see it now, because he's healed. He sees the tension at play in these relationships. And he says to them, in answer to their question, the simple, bare truth about what happened. He anointed me, I washed, and I can see. Friend, he could have obfuscated and fudged his way out of this conversation. He could have hemmed and hawed. He could have find, found a way to take the nearest exit. But instead, he just, under their microscope, says, you know what? I was blind. He anointed me. I washed. And I see. That answer then leads to this division of unbelief in verse 16. There's a mixed response by the Pharisees. Some of them immediately dismiss claims of anything miraculous coming out of this man who broke their Sabbath protocol. Now, to be clear again, we've, we've hashed through this, but just to be reminding you, he did not, Jesus did not break any Old Testament law relating to the Sabbath. Is all he did was step over some of the fences that the Pharisees had put around the Old Testament law. Things like when he spit on the ground and made the mud in his hands, they would consider that kneading. And by kneading, he was working, thereby breaking Sabbath protocol. When he healed, when he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, that also was a work, an act of, of labor, which obviously offended their Sabbath protocols, but not actually the Old Testament Sabbath laws. And so out of hand, with, with that knowledge, out of hand, some of these Pharisees, and I think the majority of the Pharisees in the room, completely dismissed Jesus. There's no way he could have done this because he is a sinner. But then there's a few more of the Pharisees who still had some sense about them, and at least at this point, they raise the issue of the sign. How is it that someone who does something like this, so obvious, so irrefutable, 
so undeniable, how could they be a sinner? And so John says there's a division between them, Greek word schismata. There's a schism. There's a deep divide in the room. There's something going on here that is causing great consternation. This happens three times in the book of John. In chapter 7, we found out it was because they were arguing about what Jesus had said in John 7. In John 10, the same thing happens. Here in John 8, it's the same reality. They're fighting over Jesus. They're divided about what is true about him. You know why they're divided externally? Because they're divided internally. Part of them wants to know the truth and part of them wants to protect their traditions and their ways. Part of their heart wants to, wants to know, is, is this really the Messiah? But part of their heart wants to protect their turf to make sure that, that their lives aren't ruffled too much, that their power is, is not taken away by this new prophet on the scene. What happens when a man is double-minded? What does James tell us in his letter, James 1, verse 8? A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. That's exactly what we see in John 9. These Pharisees are double-minded men. They can't land their feet firmly on wanting the truth or firmly on defending their territory. Now, by the end of the exchange, they'll be firmly on defending their territory. They They no longer want the truth, as we'll see by verse 34. But here, they're still waffling between two opinions. Beloved, how many people have, have stepped into hell with one foot on wanting the truth and one foot on wanting my way for my life? Waffling between wanting to know what's true and wanting to continue living however I so choose. They project then their division onto the man who was healed in verse 17. Instead of seeking the truth of the matter and letting the facts lead them to the right conclusion, which is what they're supposed to do, They're supposed to let the witnesses be brought in and and figure out what the truth is and let the truth speak for itself. But rather, they they deflect their confusion and they put it on the man who was healed. They ask him, so what do you say about this man? We can't figure it out. What do you say about this man? And notice again how he handles the pressure. He speaks the truth to them about who healed him. They are confused. He has complete clarity. The man, Jesus, must at least be a prophet, the man says. If he heals a man who is born blind in the fashion that he did, then certainly, this man is saying, we should pay attention to him. He's got something to say from some divine source. He is in some way set apart from us. It just makes sense. If you think of this man's young faith as a tree developing and growing, then this is the seedling stage. It is sprouted out of the ground and it's, it's starting to develop. Verse 15, it first came out of the ground. Now in verse 17, it's, it's grown a few feet tall and it's starting to sprout some leaves. The Pharisees simply can't make sense of this Jesus because of the blindness of their unbelief. But this man who was physically blind is now seeing it more and more clearly all the time. This man is a prophet, which provokes in the next stage of the Pharisees' devolving unbelief, which is denial in verses 18 to 24. They first seek to deny the man's experience, and then when that fails, they seek to deny the man's healer. If they can discredit his experience, then they don't have to deal with the issue of his healer, right? So they start there. And you notice how unbelief in Jesus always has a commitment to obfuscate the facts. To be unbelieving despite obvious facts in front of them. They turn on the young man and basically they call him a liar in verse 18. They, they simply do not believe that he was born blind. And take notice again of the amazing wisdom of our Lord here. I've made this point to you several times, but do not miss it. Jesus intentionally, wisely, carefully picked the only man in Jerusalem, I believe, at that time who whose healing could never be denied. He's a blind beggar sitting in a prominent place whom no one could ever say, no, yeah, he used to see one time. They all knew he had never seen. His case was obvious to all. He was known by all, and his healing was beyond question. 
These Pharisees could work to manipulate the situation as much as they wanted to. They could try to discredit his testimony and his story, but it could never, ever be done. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God as evidenced in his son. The Pharisees are so blinded by unbelief that they don't want to see the facts of the matter. This is the sheer denial of unbelief. It doesn't want to be confused with the facts. The French philosopher and infidel Voltaire once said, If in the market of Paris, before the eyes of a thousand men and before my own eyes, a miracle should be performed, I would much rather disbelieve the two thousand eyes and my own two than believe it. That is the utter denial of unbelief. You can make it as clear and obvious as you want to, Voltaire said, and I will choose to not believe. It takes more faith to not believe than it does to believe, doesn't it? But to appear to be concerned about the truth, the Pharisees then call the the man's parents to testify to the matter. They call in the two and three witnesses that they're supposed to according to the law. It, It looks official, it looks good, but really it's just a power play, isn't it? Aren't they just bringing in the the heavy hitters here for this man? Like, listen, we mean business here. If you stick with your story, they're out. We're going to bring our power and our aggression down to your parents. You don't want to do that, do you? We're going to flex the muscles of our authority over your family. And not only that, we're going to make them flex their muscles on you. We're going to put pressure on them so they put pressure on you so you recant your story and cave. We know that his parents had quite the fear of the Pharisees. We're told that in verse 22. They answered the basic question about the the reality of their son being born blind and that he could now see, but they refused to answer this incriminating question about who healed him. Now, to be fair, they probably were not there when Jesus was healed, right? They probably were not sitting with him, with their blind son, when Jesus came by. Remember back in verses 7 and 8, he came back after the washing in the pool of Siloam and being healed, he came back, the text says, and his neighbors questioned what happened to him. The insinuation is that he he either went back to his house or at least in that area. And I think, as I already mentioned, this is the day after the Sabbath, so he, he was at home the night before. Now let me paint the scene for you. You've had a son born blind from birth. He's in his 20s, let's say. We don't know how old this man is. He's an adult. He's in his 20s. He's always been blind. One day, he walks through your front door, totally seen. What is the first question you ask him? What is the first question you ask? How did you get your sight? Who healed you? Right? That's the first thing you ask. They knew the answer to the question, I am convinced. They refuse to answer the question because they know what will happen when they answer the question. They feared men. They feared the life-altering reality that truth would bring into their lives. And friend, if you're waffling between Christ or no Christ, let me tell you, if you step into the world of truth and submit to faith in Christ, it will be world-altering for you. It will be life-altering for you. Things will change for you. Know that going in with your eyes wide open. These parents knew if they admitted and confessed that it was Jesus who healed him and that Jesus is a prophet and a Messiah, they would have a complete change in their life. His parents are more concerned with the wrath of the Jews than they are with the truth about Jesus. And this is what fear of man will always do to your heart. When you esteem the opinions of man over the truth of God, you grease the slide for your soul into hell. And many a soul has entered in through the gates of hell by the door of fear of man. Paralyzed between fear of man and believing in and trusting Christ. These Pharisees simply cannot admit and believe the truth about Jesus because it would negatively impact their social standing. This little interview with the man's parents proves that the man was indeed born blind. It kind of backfires on the Pharisees and blows up in their face. 
They can't deny that anymore. It's been proven and established by two or three witnesses. So does that mean now that they admit that Jesus did it and they believe in Jesus? Well, you know not. Of course not. They, they hardened down and they, they braced down further in their denial and unbelief. And now they turn it away from the man's experience to the man's healer. And they say in this very official and threatening way, in verse 24, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. What they mean here it can be uh, taken from the book of Joshua, where Joshua confronts Achan. And the lots fall to Achan, and some, there's sin in the camp, and they don't know where, and the lots fall to Achan. And Joshua appears before Achan, and he says, give glory to God and tell the truth. That's what they're saying here to him, to the man born blind, give glory to God, and then they fill in, they, they lead him along. Here's what we want you to say. We know that this man is a sinner. Just take note of the fact that you can be a child of the devil and talk like an angel from heaven. You can be a child of Satan and spew words that sound like you have just left the throne of God. They say, give glory to God. They want nothing of the sort. They want all glory for themselves. It's not uncommon for unbelieving and unregenerate hearts to use pious sounding language, is it? To make statements that sound good religiously. They know the religious lingo. They know the phrases to say. They know how to sound like they're seeking the truth, but merely they are covering the darkness of their unbelief with the white robes of right words. They have zero interest in the glory of God here. That's what they say to the man, but it's not what they mean in their heart. Notice also that the verdict is already set. They tell the man, we know he's a sinner. Notice they can't even bring themselves to say his name. We know Jesus is a sinner. They can't even do that. He, he's just the man to them at this point. They hate him so desperately and want him out of their lives so completely. They just say, this man. They saw Jesus through the glasses of their already formed Opinions. It did not matter what Jesus did. It did not matter what truth was presented before them. They were convinced he was a sinner. We knew that already. In chapter 7, they were convinced and committed to kill him because he was a blasphemer and a liar. They viewed him as being from Nazareth, and no good thing comes from Nazareth at the end of chapter 7. Chapter 8, they picked up stones to crush in his skull because he said before Abraham was, I am in chapter 10, they'll call him a blasphemer and a liar. And by chapter 19, they'll hang him on a cross under the charge of lying and blaspheming and calling himself God in the flesh. So I wonder, how might you respond in this moment? You know the verdict set. These are the power players in society. They can ruin your life. And your life just got fixed right? His life just got set right. He just got healed. He's one day into this new life. And here he is before the power players of society who are threatening him with a complete and utter destruction of life. How would you respond in that moment? Imagine the tension and the pressure at the end of verse 24. If he agrees with them that Jesus is a sinner, then he can simply go on his merry way and enjoy the rest of his life with his healed eyes. But that tree of faith continues to grow, doesn't it? These winds of adversity that are, are blowing against the tree have not knocked it over. Is all they've done is they've deepened the roots. To stay standing, these winds have driven this tree further into the soil. And now he's sprouting higher and bigger and greener. He answers their question by telling them the truth about his condition. And whoa boy, is it a doozy of an answer. So wise, so clear, and so true. He says that he does not know if this man is a sinner or not. Remember, he's still in the process of figuring out who Jesus is. He's still in growth. But he says, I do know what's happened to me. 
I do know the, the blessed reality of, of being blind, but now seeing. In other words, he's saying, no matter what pressure you're going to put on me in this moment, I will never deny that truth. His statement of a physical miracle is one that so many believers have latched onto as a description of the spiritual miracle that's happened to us, right? Most notably, John Newton. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. This is directly from John 9. That's this man, and that's you if you are in Christ. You've been touched by Christ, and now spiritually you've been brought from death to life and from blindness to sight. This man in John 9 is is coming to that realization spiritually, but he definitely knows it physically. And he clearly says so. You can pressure me all you want. I stand by this truth. I once was blind, but now I see. Then notice the desperation of unbelief in verse 26. They start to come unhinged in verse 26. As he doubles down on his experience, they, they want to circle back around to the miracle. They want to pick at it one more time. They want to convince everyone else what they've already decided, namely that Jesus is a sinner, that he broke some, some Sabbath law. They want to interrogate him again, which is a, a classic courtroom tactic. You don't get your answer out of, your, out of your, uh, the one you're questioning the first time. You circle back around and ask it ten different ways until you finally find a little flaw in their testimony, and then you pick at it more and more until the whole thing drops. It's like you ever played the game Jenga with your kids and you're pulling those little wood blocks out. They're going right for the one that's going to knock the whole thing over. If I can pull on that one, it's over. So they want to rehearse the facts. They, they want to make it all fall down. In other words, they're desperate in their unbelief. Realizing in this moment they're getting nowhere with the man. They try these last ditch efforts. Pressure hasn't worked. Family drama hasn't worked. Maybe another inquisition will do the trick. But as you know, the man has none of it. Verse 25, he says to them that the, the reality of my condition is I was blind, but now I see. Now in verse 27, he says, here's the truth about your condition. I see my condition rightly, and now I see yours rightly. I'm not going to answer your question because I know what's going on here, and I'm going to call your bluff. I know what you're doing, and I'm not playing your game. He meets their, their unbelief with some sarcasm in verse 27. See, it is a spiritual gift. Just kidding, it's not. <laughs> he says to them, do you want to become his disciples too? Insinuates that his faith in this moment has grown to the point where he identifies himself freely and openly as a follower of Jesus. Beloved, he hasn't even yet talked to Jesus. This is an amazing progression moved along by the Spirit of God, forced along by the adversity of opposition. I am his disciple, he's essentially saying. Do you want to become one too? But the greater point is he's speaking to them the truth about their condition, making known to them that though they can't see what's going on, he knows what's going on. You're playing games. You're pressuring me. I will not submit. The question he asked them then turns the tables back on them, doesn't it? In verses 28 and 29. Now they're on trial. His courage and clarity puts them in a spot where now they have to answer the difficult questions. Now they have to try and save face in front of everyone in the room that heard what he asked. These winds of adversity blow away their mask and expose the deception of their unbelief. They try to fight it off and say, no, we're, we're disciples of Moses. Try to make this excuse of why they're not then disciples of Jesus. As though those two things are diametrically opposed. I'm of Moses, therefore I can't be of Jesus, is what they're saying in verses 28 and 29. They think they're, they're following Moses when in actuality they have no idea what it means to be a follower of Moses. This is the deception of unbelief. They think they're standing squarely upon the Old Testament revealed word of God. 
They think they're, they're holding in one hand the, the Old Testament law code and in the other hand the prophetic scriptures that promised a, a coming day when all that would come together in, in the glorious day of, of Israel that they're going to bring in. In reality, they're in some other universe. They're not following Moses at all. In fact, Jesus said to them in chapter 5, if you believed Moses you would believe me because Moses wrote of me. In other words, you can't be a disciple of Moses and not be a disciple of Jesus. You you can't follow the Old Testament rightly, truly. You can't really actually understand what's going on in the Old Covenant and not have faith in the promise kept in the New Covenant. Jesus of Nazareth. This is the self-deception of religion, isn't it? It lures you into believing that you are on the right path because you're carrying out the ways of those who have gone before you. That you've got the, the old-time religion behind you. You, you. you are prone to think that, I mean, how many people could really be wrong? I mean, all these people that have gone before me and have walked in these ways, certainly they were all right. So I'll just pick up their mantle and I'll walk in their ways and do their thing. And, and pretty soon your trust is landing squarely on tradition and the commandments of men as we see in these Pharisees so very clearly. You see this in the mainline churches of today in which they, and this is easy picking, so I'll pick on them. But because I'm, I'm taking the, the low fruit, don't let that miss your heart for the higher fruit. Because we're all prone to this. But the mainline denominations of our day have, have vested themselves in their old-time religion, claiming themselves to be orthodox based upon staying in the path of people who've gone before, just like the Pharisees. They've become disciples of creeds and of church councils and whatever else, while missing entirely how those creeds and councils point ultimately to the authority of Scripture. And they shift their trust away from Christ to men. And they then become no disciple of Christ at all. This is what's happening in our text. They think they're following the law which came through Moses, but they're refusing the grace and truth which come through Jesus the Christ. And so they say, frankly, we do not know where Jesus came from. First honest thing they've said in the conversation. Leads to this amazing declaration of the whole text. The the exclamation point of this text is found in verses 30 to 33. And it's the truth spoken by this man about who could have healed him. So he's been clear about what happened to him. He's been clear about who did heal him. He's been clear about his condition. He's been clear about their condition. And now he's going to speak the truth about who it is that could have healed him to drive the point home all the more. Their opposition and their adversity provokes him to greater faith. He has a tree that is now growing large, right? It's now well beyond a sapling. It is to a full-grown tree ready to produce fruit. Verse 30, he's completely shocked by their brazen unbelief and he, he calls them out on it. He moves from sarcasm in verse 27. He goes full prophet mode in verses 30 to 33. Like, listen, I'm having none of this. I'm going to tell you the truth to your face. No matter what it costs me, that's a prophetic word. He says, here's the truth of the matter. Here's what it is. How in the world can you not see this, he says. So he argues with them from their received and accepted truth from the Old Testament. I would guess that he sat in synagogue class under these Pharisees who taught him these things. And he's now saying, repeating to them, listen, you taught me that a sinner cannot go to God and get anything from him. An unrepentant, impenitent sinner who refuses to humble themselves before the Lord, has no accessibility to God. You taught me that. And you don't know where this man came from? How is it that he called down healing power from heaven to do a miracle that has never been done in the history of humankind? 
to heal eyes born blind. How do you not know? By the way, he says in verse 33 that Jesus is from God. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The opposite is true. He's, he's stating in negative form what he firmly believes, that Jesus is from God. And just to be clear, he is not just saying that in a nebulous way, like, yeah, I think he came down from God. Somehow. No, he's saying what is at stake in verse 22. He knows what they think about Jesus. He knows they have committed to saying Jesus is not from God. He is not the Messiah. We will bully anyone who believes that and says that. We'll kick them out and excommunicate them because we will not have people in our synagogue believing that. And this man stands before them brazenly with eyes freshly seen. He can see the rage building in their pupils, see the steam pouring out of their ears, knows he's in trouble, and yet he still says to them, this man, Jesus, is from God. Do to me what you wish. That's the essence here. I will stand, I will live, and I will die on that truth, is what he says. How can you not see it? Adversity has tested his faith and strengthened it. But this clarity produces even more vitriolic unbelief from them, doesn't it? Verse 34, we see the complete denunciation that's produced by their unbelief. They basically say in verse 34, how dare you? How dare you? They slap him on the proverbial hand and say, shut your mouth. How dare you come into our synagogue, you who were born in sin, and say this to our face? Unbelievable that you would think you could teach us. John loves to put irony in his narrative, so you must notice what happens in verse 34. They admit in verse 34 what they've known from the beginning but acted like they didn't know at the beginning. That this man was born in sin, in blindness. Now he wasn't born in sin, his own or his parents. Jesus cleared that up. But the Jewish thought was he was born blind because he was in sin. So they say you were born in sin, meaning we admit you were born blind. That was the very thing they said at the beginning we won't believe. They believed it all along. They knew it was the truth. They knew him. They had seen him. They knew his story. They knew his parents. They trained him in synagogue. And yet they played this game to keep their power and their prestige and their social position. And this man calls their bluff and now they say, how dare you do that to us? How dare you call our bluff? How dare you say that to our face. And so they denunciate him. They cast him out. That does not mean they simply throw him out of the room. This is looking back to verse 22 again, the, the core of the text. They completely excommunicate him from Jewish life. And I remind you, he is one day in to new sight. There are things he has never done in the temple because of his blindness. There are, are things of, of service and worship he's never participated in because he's been blind from birth. He's one day in and now he's out again because he clung to Jesus. You see, this is where unbelief goes when it cannot win at the pressure game or the character assassination game or the power play game. It goes full denunciation game, full casting out game, full excommunication game. We can't convince you, we can't manipulate you, we can't power play you, therefore we get rid of you. Do you see how this explosion of controversy has affected the man differently than it has the Pharisees? This man of real faith had a faith tested by fires and it was refined. His sapling tree of faith was pressed upon by the fierce winds of unbelief and it strengthened his root system and grew a stronger tree. But that adversity which then challenged the professed faith in God of the Pharisees had an opposite effect. 
exposing their hearts and uncovering their unbelief. So what's the takeaway for you this morning? Maybe you're like these Pharisees who have a faith in God that's false and fake and the winds of adversity have blown strong upon it and exposed it for what it is. It's not too late. You don't have to fear men anymore. You don't have to worry about how your lines will fall out for you if you put your stake with Jesus and him alone. You can trust him not just for your salvation but for everything else that comes in life after you are born again in him. But for the rest of us, you must know that faith will be tested and true faith will last and will be strengthened. If you believe in Jesus and abide in his word, be guaranteed that this is how the world will treat you. This is the opposition that awaits you. And the only thing that prepares you to stand tall in your faith when the winds of those oppositions blow against you is the spiritual sight you've been given by the healing touch of your Savior. This man could stand the winds of opposition because he had been healed. You don't need to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and puff out your chest with your own bravado and say, I've got this. I can take on the world. No, you can't. They will eat you alive. But Christ can through you. Your only hope in that moment is that you have been so deeply touched, indelibly marked, forever changed, eternally transformed, spiritually born anew, born from above. Having that root system your tree will grow and thrive even in the winds of adversity. As we close, can I take you quickly to three texts? When I think of testing and affliction, I know you're thinking three, we're gonna be here till one, we're not. Go to Romans with me, Romans five. When I think of tests of affliction and adversity, these are the three texts that come immediately to my mind that I root myself in for my own growth. If you have faith in Jesus that's real and true, guaranteed it will be tested. It will be tested by a world that hates Christ. It will be tested under the fatherly providence of your good God in heaven. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a settled fact. You have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. James chapter one. If your faith is real, it will be tested. When it is tested, it will be strengthened. When it is strengthened, your heart will be encouraged. When your heart is encouraged, you will be full of more hope, more convinced that all of this is true. James 1 verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How in the world can you count these things joy? James says in verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing through Paul our Lord has promised us in Philippians 1 verse 6 that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ part of how he completes his work in you is to test your faith to bring you various trials under his sovereign control pouring upon you strengthening and sufficient grace for every moment and every hour to bring your faith to its completion. 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I love that phrase. 
I love the honesty of Scripture. Counting it all joy that you face various trials does not mean you always have a happy-go-lucky smile on your face, this is great, Lord, thanks, mentality. No, it just flat hurts sometimes. It stings to the depths of your soul. And it would crush you if God did not give you grace to endure. And you grieve that you have to suffer in this way. But you can rejoice, he goes on to say, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Suffering through affliction, perseverance through trials has a backward look and a forward look. A backward look at the healing touch of my Savior upon my spiritual man that I who was born blind am now given sight. And a forward look that through the trial and trouble and testing of my faith, through this much affliction, there's coming a day when it will all combine to the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ as my faith is matured and brought to its full. You can only endure today if those two things are true. True faith tested is true faith strengthened. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, you have asked some of our people in this present hour to face some of their hardest challenges to date. We are so thankful for your word which speaks to our deepest need and our most severe wound. Thank you, Father, for telling us that those things were coming and telling us why they're coming. We pray that you would, through the testing of the faith of our brothers and sisters, would produce endurance and endurance producing character and character producing hope and hope not disappointing as we together look to the glory that will be revealed at the coming of your son. So Father, help us as we grieve through trial to be filled with the joy of these texts as we trust you and as our faith is strengthened while it is tested. Help us, Lord. We love you and we praise you that you've loved us in your son. In his name we pray. Amen.